Hello. You're listening to the director commentary track on 1917. I'm the director, Sam Mendes. Also, in this case, the co-writer and producer. And this movie, it's fair to say, was a labour of love based on stories my grandfather told me, Alfred Mendes, to whom the movie is dedicated at the very end. One of the things I worked on with Thomas Newman, the composer, was right from the very start giving this sense of expectation, not pushing it too hard, but allowing the music to gently come to a point here, uh, which is both the date on which the story takes place and, of course, the title of the movie. One of the things that I was most, I suppose, pleased with with the film was that an audience needed to know nothing about the First World War in order to watch it. It was never intended in any way as a history lesson. Um, and all they need to know is the day on which it, it takes place. And another thing that uh, I was pleased with was the sense of shape in the film. It starts with Schofield, eyes closed in a state of semi-consciousness under a tree, and it ends with him in exactly the same position, but of course, everything's changed. Sorry, Sarge. Pick a man. Bring your kit. Yes, Sarge. And in that one simple line that the sergeant gives him is sort of their fate. I have no idea what's ahead of them or what's intended for them. And Schofield just happens to be the person sitting next to Blake in this moment. I wanted with the two men to create this sort of unlikely friendship between two people who would probably not come into contact with each other in civilian life that much. They're two quite different beings. Schofield's much more internal. He's been there longer, obviously. You hear later that he's, um, he's fought in the Somme. And Blake, who's much chattier and probably a little less conventionally well-educated. This shot, I suppose, was the one of two shots that I needed the most confidence for in the, in the entire movie. And people are surprised when I say that, but it's partly because I needed to make a relationship between the two men without seeming to deliver a lot of exposition to the audience. You should find out about them kind of accidentally. And they don't have anything particular to talk about. One of the greatest bits of confidence I needed in the movie was to tell Dean Charles Chapman, who's wonderful as Blake, to take the time it would normally take to read a letter, just walk. Um, you wanted the audience to feel like you're observing two people just passing the time, chatting as they walk towards where the sergeant is and gradually finding out about them and to try and make an audience lean in for the information rather than be presented with it. There's also this shot, of course, which pulls back from the tree and gradually reveals layer after layer where they are, how many people are there, the tents, the mess tents, the haircuts, the rations being loaded and gradually eradicates the sky in the background. So they descend lower and lower into the earth until the sky here has completely disappeared. 
And that feeling of um, entrapment, that gradual feeling of increasing their, that sense of claustrophobia, is also accentuated by Tom Newman's score here with that descending strings. And the score finally drops out here when they're talking about where the boys are trying to sort of prize out of the sergeant exactly what's happening and what's intended. Most of the men on the Western Front spent their lives waiting, you know, and uh, waiting for the big advance, waiting for an attack. And these trenches that we constructed really were their homes for many, many years. And it was really sobering when we built over a mile of trenches and filled them with people to feel like we'd constructed maybe a one-thousandth of how many trenches there were in the trench system. And then this first inkling here that if it's General Erin Moore, played by Colin Firth, then perhaps this is a big, a big ask that they're about to hear or there's going to be something afoot that is of a larger scale than perhaps they anticipated. You have a brother, a lieutenant in the second Devons. That sense of the boys stumbling into something that they hadn't anticipated on any level was very important, that it took them by surprise and took us, the audience, by surprise. And in those five minutes, we really have to learn a little bit about those characters as the only opportunity until, you know, the mission is stated and they're shot out of this scene like a bullet from a gun and they can't look back. I don't understand, sir. Sir, that land is held by the Germans. Germans have gone. Don't get your hopes up. This became a really important shot for me. It was the one that, one of the ones I thought about the most. Because once you're committed to this idea of two hours of real time and committed to the idea of there being no cuts, and that's how I like to talk about the movie, rather than a one-shot movie, which is a phrase that was not coined by me. I prefer to talk about it as a movie with no cuts, in other words, no way out, no jumps of time or space, and a gradual, unconscious realisation, hopefully from the audience, that you're never going to leave these characters' side and you're going to have to experience every second that ticks by with them, take every step with them, whether it's hard or easy. And we can't warn them as a parting gift. This shot became important. One of the things I didn't want was to pan back and forth between characters. That felt to me like a badly edited scene rather than a one-shot situation. I wanted this constantly moving, this gradually moving push which has a sort of threat in it. So I needed to stage many of the scenes in order to achieve that. And in this case, that meant having the maps on two tables, starting with that push-in on Colin First character, having him turn round, having the boys come round to the next table and continue the push-in on them. Map, torches, grenades. Although this seems like a simple shot, what we needed to achieve it was incredibly complicated. We built Erin Moore's dugout on a stage and the first part of the shot was on a techno crane pushing across the table the camera was then unhooked from the techno and panned now by hand and and remotely by roger deakins so it was held by grips and panned remotely by our wonderful cinematographer roger deakins who then pans back to colin and the techno crane in that time has retreated and the entire set opened up the ceiling opened up, the back wall opened up, 
and the techno crane went back behind the wall. The wall closed just in time for the camera to see back into the room. So that's a good example of how something that seems very simple, very effortless, and should do, um, and should not draw attention to itself, in fact, required an enormous amount of construction. I'm not going to talk a lot about the blends, morphs, stitches, the, the way in which the shots, which obviously were very long, were joined, but I will occasionally mention them because uh, I think it's important to understand the rhythm and how sometimes those blend points were determined by the actors, sometimes by the locations, sometimes by a sense of rhythm, uh, and how much a single operator sometimes could cope with in terms of physical the physical difficulty of shooting the scene. So this is one here. As he walks through that crowd, there's a simple wipe, uh, just a very simple, we pass by a single upright soldier and that formed the end of that shot, which started as they exit Erin Moore's dugout. So what you have is that would be called, in this case, the A side, the B side of that would be as they emerge out of that crowd of people. And that's a good example of a very low-fi in-camera technique just to put two shots together that feels completely continuous and never stops you from focusing on the men. Often the trick is to make sure that those moments, those blends, those morphs happen at periods or moments of great drama or great speed or intensity because that's the last thing you're thinking about. One of the things we concentrated very much on with uh, production design in this movie and Dennis Gastner's incredible work on the trenches and everywhere in the film was the, the structure and the organisation with which the trenches were constructed and thought out. We, in this uh, one sequence, obviously come from the rear trench, which is the one that crosses their path as they begin, down the second line, down a comms trench, which, as you can work out from what's said to them as they move down it, either went one way, up or down. In other words, they were like one-way streets, the comms trenches, which meant communications trenches, linked the larger trenches. And they've just come down a one-way <laughs> trench, down onto the front line. And we concentrated very much on the shifts in atmosphere between the different trenches. And here they've reached the front line, and that feeling, that heavy feeling of waiting, that sense in which this trench has taken endless poundings and um, has had to be constructed and reconstructed and reconstructed over years. Um, this layering that we had to go into and this sense that these men are either asleep or in a kind of waking sleep or eating or smoking or just killing time, that heavy sense of quiet and dread, that was something we, we uh, worked very hard on. And here, of all the things, uh, the irony is the first major obstacle they face is one of their own men, is that Blake, in his determination to rush ahead, has, has bumped into a fellow soldier, an injured sergeant, and knocked him down and caused a kerfuffle. And suddenly you see the thin veneer of confidence is just stripped away. And um, I love this moment, this feeling that Blake is like a child in, in this uh, section, fighting tears and his own vulnerability suddenly becomes so clear and you see the concern on the face of his friend uh, Schofield behind him. 
I wanted this sense of quiet and, and dread, as I said, and they start talking about it here. And here's another moment where you find out a little bit about the men. That um, if you're listening carefully, you realize that one of them has considerably more experience than the other. Schofield has fought in the Somme and won a medal. And Blake kind of looks up to him and thinks medals are cool. <laughs> and is halfway through this conversation. And then they enter this recently shelled section of the front line. One of the many, many hundreds of striking details that Christy Wilson Cairns, my wonderful co-writer, and I stumbled across when making and writing this film was uh, that they would bury body parts in sandbags. So many men in this war went unburied uh, or in unmarked graves, partly because if they were hit by shells or killed out in no man's land and people couldn't retrieve their bodies, then uh, they would simply rot and disappear into the land. This is Gabe Akawudike, splendid young actor, and a dog that uh, reminds me of my old dog, Myrtle, a Parsons Terrier with a sad face. When we rehearsed these scenes in the trenches, we constructed the interior scenes, like the one we're about to enter, on stages at Shepparton Studios out of giant piles of cardboard boxes so that I could move the walls to get exactly the right dimensions of the room before we started building. And we kind of did that with every scene. Do you imagine that we started this long sequence on an empty field, marking the trenches with posts and marking every incident that happened within the trenches with different colored flags so that we could not start building and constructing the trenches until we know exactly what scenes they had to accommodate, how long the journey was, and in many cases, how long the pauses we could hold before the next incident, the next dialogue scene. Because I wanted this feeling of being able to breathe in and breathe out, not always on the go, not always talking. And here we hit this scene with uh, Lieutenant Leslie, who's kind of feverish and angry. And I think Andrew Scott makes a magnificent job of this. There's a medal in it, for sure. Nothing like a scrap of ribbon to cheer up a widow. This was a complicated scene to shoot. Uh, I think we did something like 56 takes of this scene. There was a lot of technical issues within it. It's part of the fact it's a very complicated piece of staging and um, with camera and actors as well. You know, in five takes, the lighter broke and the, the cigarette went out and then there was another take when the, you know, five more takes when the flare gun didn't fit in Blake's pocket, this, that and the other. And trying to get this very... This is very composed, this shot. You see... Leslie in the foreground, obviously on the left, you can see Blake looking out of the periscope. They built periscopes so that they could see over no man's land without having their heads shot off. And Schofield loading his gun. And that feeling that you're telling several stories simultaneously, that the eye is free to wander, that sometimes goes to the person talking and other times the person listening or the person doing something, that was very important to me uh, and to Roger Deakins. We won't come after you, not till it's dark. We shot most of the movie on a 40mm lens. That slight sense of drop-off, uh, it's not especially wide, um, and neither is it especially long. It's its own thing. And I suppose the thing that influenced us most was um, photographs of the period, which were shot conventional lenses. Here, 
in a nice irony, given that Andrew Scott is the hot priest from Fleabag, he performs the last rites on the <laughs> with his um, his little nip of whiskey, and uh, that sense of the crowd gathering behind them, that, that sense in which gradually the men become aware that there are two men going over to what they assume is going to be their certain deaths. That was something it took a little while to coordinate. Michael Lerman, the first AD and our associate producer, was spectacularly good with background in this movie. It was an incredibly hard job to get that sense of having lived there. And sometimes you get people trying a little bit too hard in background. But that sense of reality comes in large part from Michael and his AD team, who did an incredible job layering that background. And then we get to, I suppose, in microcosm, what it was like working on the film as a whole. If you gaze at photographs of no man's land, what you see is flat land and a few trees. But when you enter that world, if you really read the first-person accounts, the descriptions, it is a world unto itself. And barely a, a yard goes by without some extraordinary sight or some terrible unexpected surprise. Uh, here they passed these dead horses, a reminder that this was a war that started with horses and carriages and ended as the first uh, industrial war with tanks and machine guns, a kind of perfect storm of history where you could kill a man at a thousand yards with a machine gun but still were unable to communicate with that same man over 20 yards. And they're currently still following the signposts that Andrew Scott's character, Leslie, gives them, which is past the dead horses, and there's a break beside the bowing chap, which is this dead man you see caught in the wire. And then this balance that I wanted to strike in the movie between the epic, uh, the scale of it, the landscape, and these tiny details, the intimate, the fact that he snags his hand in the wire that you feel both the small and the large, hopefully, in the same shot. And then this moment where Blake looks out over No Man's Land and almost freezes because it seems impossibly huge and vast and daunting to cross this space. Here, Schofield spots the sap trench. A sap trench was a trench built out at right angles from the front line so that people could travel into No Man's Land, mostly to collect dead bodies, uh, without being shot or even noticed, but many of these sap trenches flooded or got filled, as this one has been, with bodies. And they drop into it, really looking for cover, and so Schofield can check his wound. And they end up having this extremely, viscerally unpleasant experience with these corpses that have lived there and are beginning to rot and be eaten by the rats. This sense of creatures living here where humans can't abide was very key to me and this on the left here you see this little rat scuttling away that sense of your peripheral vision being disturbed by movement uh, was important to me that, that feeling that we were not just showing a journey across no man's land for the two men but in some sense also bearing witness to it bearing witness to this place to say just that this did happen and these things were there the sense that 
you know, sometimes it might be a body as it is here, sometimes just a trick of the light, sometimes uh, mud or a movement of an animal. And there are these huge corpses lying there untouched, one of which, of course, is this, this giant tank that you see approaching in the distance. And when the planes flew over, it really is a prefiguring of the planes later in the film. I wanted the audience still to have a kind of sense memory of the sheer power and weight of these planes so that when one eventually comes down and, of course, does lead to one of the two boys' deaths, it was still there somewhere in the audience's short-term memory. Roger Deakins and I worked very, very hard trying to construct this dance with the two men in No Man's Land. It was, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy in the trenches, but it's quite straightforward in a way. You're either following them or pulling them. So No Man's Land is the moment of truth for us. It was the moment where we had to establish this choreography of camera and character and landscape, all three of which are moving all the time. And we talked very much about getting that particular close-up as they cross that little ridge between two giant craters of the feet slipping in the mud. To state the obvious, the mud was unbelievably hard to walk in. I fell over a number of, a humiliatingly large number of times, as did the boys and the crows there, roosting and pecking away at that body pit. And that sense, again, that you can't quite make out the bodies, whether they're limbs, whether they're arms or legs that really disturbing sense of that death is all around you, but you can't quite see it clearly. Again here, various corpses of various ages rotting. And if you look on the far bank there, there's a, there's a skeleton buried in the bank side, which I think was important, that feeling that they're almost fossilized, you know, and you pass a, a bloated body in the foreground floating in space. This is one of the shots we, we talked a lot about, this sense of the camera floating over the water. We eventually achieved it on a wire. And that feeling that one sometimes wants the larger shots, the shots that establish geography, the things you would normally have with a wide shot in established film grammar. You wanted to achieve those things without cutting but still have them. You want the close-ups and you want the wide shots. And so that has to be achieved in a mixture of Staging is where you put the actors within the landscape and how you move the camera. But again, as we emerge from behind this berm, suddenly the two men are further away again. One of the things that we worked hard on was trying to express the scale of it. And I realized this, the scale is best expressed looking, as it were, in profile along the lines as we are here, you see and understand the, the length of No Man's Land rather than just the depth. And then this revelation of the empty German trench, and again, constructing what effectively is a wide shot in which you have the information in the foreground. That again was a combination of staging and the way in which the camera, the camera actually tracks pretty much alongside them. They, they move away from camera as they get closer to the German trench. And then you're in this other world, abandoned, obviously, uh, but constructed quite differently from the Allied trenches. The Germans 
on the whole used engineers to design architects to um, to plan and map out their trenches. They had much more superior materials here. They're using concrete, different kinds of wood. Uh, the whole thing, you know, it's, it's better signposted, all based on obviously very close research of the differences between the Allied trenches and the German trenches. And while this goes on, you have this low-grade sort of psychological disturbance, which is uh, sitting in Tom Newman's music, which gets that feeling that something's always about to happen. We depend on that a lot in this first couple of reels. When we previewed the movie, our first preview in Paramus, New Jersey, when I felt the audience were really held by the film, and I was very, very happy, at that moment where Blake kicks over the brazier of hot coals and it becomes clear that the Germans have only just abandoned a trench, there was a, an actual noise, was a vocal noise of fear from the audience. And uh, that was the moment I thought, well, we've really, we've really got them here and um, they're with us. Now we... Rather foolishly, Blake chooses, I suppose, to go down into, partly out of interest and intrigue as much as anything else, down into the German dugout. We pass through a beat of black, and I'm sure most of you would guess, if you're looking for such things, that uh, this is a cut, or rather a blend from one setup to another, and that's because we go from an exterior location where we constructed the German trench to an interior build. We built this... Um, dug out on stage at Shepparton. I built all this. And um, Roger Deakins constructed these two torches. We began to realise quite quickly that the only light source in this place could be their torches, which have been handed to them, of course, by Erin Moore in that first scene. And uh, that creates a really interesting moving light. Sometimes they're in silhouette, uh, sometimes not, but that, that really worked well for us. But uh, uh, Roger spent a long time developing these lights so that they threw enough light, but not too much, and didn't seem too contemporary to this interplay of shadow and light, which is very eerie in the scene, um, along with all the emptiness and the fact that the Germans had real beds and the, the signs of their lives, their families and all the things that the British soldiers also have. Bloody hell. Even that rats We've been introduced to the rats in No Man's Land, and here's probably one of the larger ones, um, our little friend who takes a journey around the I-beams and leads Schofield's torch and his point of view to this pile of tins. One of the things that happened when the Germans retreated to the Hindenburg line was they left a lot of booby traps, and here's one that they're about to discover. Blake is constantly on the lookout for food, he talks about food a lot, and um, it's he who asks about what the second bunch of tins are in that box and leads Schofield to spot the tripwire. I was pleased with this idea that we came up with, uh, that it's the rat in his desperation for food, who triggers the wire and takes them completely by surprise. 
one of the things that happens when the movie screens with an audience is that they jump when the rat hits the ground and are still recovering from that when the big explosion goes and they jump again. And they're now one of my personal nightmares, which is being buried alive. And uh, I suppose rats is another one of those. Anyone who has watched Skyfall will know I have a thing about rats. <laughs> I don't like them very much. And some of them are, are escaping here as Blake tries to uncover his friend and check that he's still alive and still breathing. Uh, that image, like uh, Francis Bacon's One of the Screaming Popes, I had that image in my head of uh, Schofield with his mouth open, filled with dust in the process of screaming and suddenly robbed of breath. But he manages to find a last gasp here and bring himself back to life. And then the nightmare of being buried alive continues. Obviously, Schofield's eyes are blinded by the dust and he has to grip on to Blake for guidance. And that I wanted that feeling in the audience that the roof was falling in and that, that everything was coming down on them. And a lot, we dropped an enormous amount on these boys and on our brilliant camera operator in this scene, Pete Cavacuti, who came out of the tunnel looking white as a ghost, covered in dust and stone. I like this, uh, this imploring of Blake to jump across this blind space dark space when, when not being able to see. And as we come out of this tunnel, which was constructed, as I said, on stage, you start seeing the light ahead. And that diagonal beam that you see is coming up, that forms our blend point, that is a wipe. And when they come out the other side of the beam, we're on location. So that's another one. I've given away three. I can't give away too many more. And we found this extraordinary quarry, the semicircular, almost amphitheater that the Germans constructed at the rear of their lines, Many fo much photo evidence here. And they dug enormous tunnels and a kind of network like a mine. We found something very similar to that, obviously without the, the entrances and what have you, but we found this, this basic shape not too far from Shepperton Studios in the UK, dug in a kind of, it was clay, I think. Dust. So much dust in my eyes. And we were fortunate, as we were throughout the shoot with weather, to have this sort of milky sunshine, this sort of dusty uh, late afternoon sun that they come out into, which has a whole atmosphere of its own, really. Um, it's not full sunlight, but it has a kind of a very, very different feeling to the weather and to the light when they enter the tunnels on the other side. I didn't know what I was picking you for. No. Christy Wilson-Cairns and I worked very hard at, at trying to find moments where right, characters weren't always in sync. I think when we first wrote the draft, they were sort of, they were both in the same boat all the time. And then we gradually introduced a sort of friction between the two of them. You know, early on, Schofield imploring Blake to wait until dark and Blake refusing to wait. And then Schofield kind of taking over 
control of the journey from Blake on No Man's Land. And here they have this disagreement, you know, Schofield quite understandably is absolutely, he's terrified and, and he's still adrenalised. And he feels that, that Blake brought him on this journey. But of course, he understands that Blake didn't really choose him for, the, for this journey. He didn't know what he was choosing for. And they both calm down. And their friendship kind of, they regroup during the, the oncoming scene. And the way I wanted to conceive of this next movement of the film was them, in a way, making their friendship concrete again. And in order to do that, we had to score it with a little bit more softness, warmth, as they began chatting about um, things that weren't to do with their immediate environment. Coast is directly southeast. And if we keep that bearing. Right here, though, they are very much refocusing themselves on the journey. And one of the things I was also conscious of doing was them in a kind of in the process of geeing each other up and even geeing themselves up, reminding each other and therefore us, the audience, where they were, how far they had to go, and in which direction and whether it seemed easy or hard. So you see those sorts of signpost lines throughout, which I feel are needed to just refocus what the intention of the next section of the scene, the next section of the movie is. A good example of that would be saying, keep going, we're halfway on no man's land, or there, that's the German trench, or, you know, if we keep going, we, should, we shouldn't be able to miss a coost. You know, and there are lines like that when they get to the farmhouse later. And all of those things are important because that constant restatement of the journey and where they are on the journey, I feel an audience needs that in order to lock in to the next section. Here, you feel Blake trying to find some other form of communication with Schofield to take his mind off it, but also because he feels regretful, he feels guilty that he's brought him on this journey. And he's beginning to think, I need to keep him buoyed up. I'm not sure he consciously thinks that, but he thinks that unconsciously. And he starts telling him a story about his friend, Wilco. Many of the character names in this uh, movie are people from my school days, people from cricket teams I played in, <laughs> and in the case of the back of the truck, even the current England cricket team, or the current England cricket team as was when I wrote the script. So Cook, Butler, Stokes, these sorts of people, they are straight out of the English cricket team. And here... Blake is telling Schofield about uh, his friend Wilco and the fact that um, the story about the rat biting his ear off, and that comes straight out of a first-person account of the war that was read by Christie. And many of the first-person accounts do find their way into the movie. I mean, there were so many we couldn't obviously use and so many elements of the war we couldn't use. We couldn't use gas, we couldn't use tanks. I mean, we wanted to, but we couldn't find a way without it seeming overly contrived that all these things happen in such a tight area of time. One of the things we did really want to use was the planes and the pilots and that sense that you get reading first-person accounts that the, the grunts, the, the boys on the ground, kind of hero-worshipped and um, adored the, the air service. And for them, it was a kind of romantic vision, a kind of idealised part of the war. 
blah, blah, blah. But the reality was, obviously, they were up there in incredibly fragile machines, which you see disappearing now behind the cops in the deep background. I didn't lose mine. And now you see nature beginning to kind of force its way back through again. I swapped it with a French... We shot this movie in Salisbury Plain in the west of England, which is a 1,000 feet above sea level, but it's very flat. Like the, Obviously, it was, we chose it to replicate the fields and landscape of northern France. And so you get this immense sky that drops over the horizon with this constantly changing microclimate. So the clouds are moving all the time. It's very dramatic. But that sense I wanted to have in the movie that nature is laughing at these people who are destroying it, that it will win out in the end and that it's a world with this blossom on the trees. It's the spring of 1917 when the Germans retreat to the Hindenburg line. Leaves are coming back. The rivers are running with uh, fresh rain. And uh, that was very important to me, that there was the sense of hope as manifested in the story of nature. And here you begin to see what Schofield is really covering up, uh, why he seems so reticent to talk about his how he won his medals, why he doesn't want to talk about the Somme, why he doesn't want to talk about going home. It's just too painful. And you begin also to sense that he has children of his own, even though you don't know it for sure. And Blake, again, feels regretful and feels he has pushed too hard and he needs to somehow make it up. And the blossoms in the orchard give him a wonderful opportunity to talk about something that, much to Schofield's surprise, he knows quite a lot about. As he steps in here through the wall, that wall forms a wipe, and we go into the next scene, as it were. And we obviously had to get the weather to match here. The skies had to be cloudy in the similar sort of condition. And I wanted a kind of soft breeze ruffling the blossom and nature basically gave us what we wanted either that or roger deakins has a deal with god so that he gave us the perfect light for many of the shots here and the perfect weather conditions mum's got an orchard back home and that sense of that huge flat horizon line rising up behind them uh, the immensity of the land and that sense of almost primeval landscape. Salisbury Plain is where Stonehenge is built in uh, in England. And there is a sort of druidic feeling of the whole to the whole place. It feels very much, you know, like a blasted heath. That it's you and the elements. You'll end up more trees than before. So we have constructed this orchard, Dennis Gaston, our production designer, and everything you see here through the door of the orchard, the farmhouse, the barn, the road going over the... Uh, the hill there, we constructed all of that uh, to feel, obviously, as if it had been there for hundreds of years. But in order to do that, we had to walk that hill and work out how long the conversation was that took place in the orchard before we started building the orchard. So that's what we did. So we were on these hillsides six months before we started shooting with these boys walking this exact journey with posts in the ground marking the location of the farmhouse, the location of the barn. This is a sequence I, I came with, up with quite early, that sense of coming into a domestic environment that had been effectively looted and destroyed by the German soldiers during the occupation. 
and that feeling of just seeing fragments of a domestic life in this very, very eerie and uh, abandoned place. There's something of a... Both Roger Deakins and I are very big fans of Tarkovsky and there's something of a Tarkovsky homage here in this open window frame, looking out onto this bleak landscape with the two the two men talking in foreground and background. And then these little remaining details of the life that once happened in this place, the kitchen and... This was a line I actually added on the day, Schofield saying, I don't like this place. I felt I needed something to just anchor the audience in the sense of unease, to say this is even within the context of this story where they're passing through so many haunted places, this place feels bad and it feels to me like something's going to happen here. And sure enough, it does. But again, you're not quite sure how or why. But that low-grade psychological disturbance that's sitting subliminally in the scene through Tom Newman's music, that's um, giving us the feeling that something is going to happen just we're not sure from what direction it's going to come. One of the things the Germans did, apart from destroy anything of lasting value or potential sustenance for the Allied troops, was they killed all the livestock, they killed the cows, they chopped down the trees, obviously, anything that would bear fruit. And uh, it was all a kind of um, FU to the... British troops who they felt would follow them across this landscape. They made it as difficult as possible for the line, the Allied lines, to come all the way back to the new line, the new German line, the Hindenburg line, which was nine miles, in some cases, a little further away. Get over that ridge. It's a straight shot to a coast. Good. And then we have this, this moment, really, it was very dis very deliberate moment earlier on when they split up going into the farmhouse the first time they've separated as characters and you feel Blake being pulled further away and more and more becoming aware that you're following Schofield and then it's the third appearance of the planes uh, deliberate, that sense of getting their physical reality in the first appearance getting their sort of dreamy distance in their second appearance. And here, a combination of the two, starting with this sort of distant ballet of the three planes, two British and one German, in a dogfight. And then this sequence, which was added to immeasurably by the land we happened to find for the farmhouse. When we found this hill, or this as it were, sloping land away from the barn, we thought, well, why doesn't the plane disappear over the horizon and then reappear? And for me, that makes all the difference because it appears to be crashing and obviously Schofield moves towards it. Blake stands more alert and then he sees it before we do. It's coming back over the horizon, flying towards them and to the barn. Now here I, I, I used a bit of 007 know-how it's useful having made two huge Bond movies over five years to know how to combine visual effects, special effects, and a little bit of smoke and mirrors and some staging uh, to try and construct this feeling of going from far in the distance to right up and inside it very, very quickly. 
and the sense of the reality of the burning plane and them having to pick him out of this scalding cockpit with his legs burning and his his skin frying, really, this German pilot. And then the horrible, horrible irony of Blake being the person who says, no, don't kill him, get him some water. And in that moment of kindness, basically signing his own death warrant. This was very deliberate misdirection for the audience. That moment you're thinking, is that water going to run clear? Is the moment you miss, he's been stabbed. And it only takes a second. Obviously, Schofield shoots him, but this moment here, when he sees the blood and the look on his face, to me, I think that's one of the finest pieces of acting in the film. And it was helped immeasurably by the way in which we shot it, because we couldn't cut. We had to construct a pump that was actually contained within his kit bag on his back. So the blood was pumping out of him all the time. And there was something about the physical sensation of that for Dean that made him really feel like he was bleeding out. And I think that helped the scene hugely. Uh, and again and again in this movie, not breaking the shots up, not breaking the scenes up into their component parts, not fragmenting them, helped the actors live it rather than just act it. And this is a good example. This is all one take, nine minutes, I think, eight and a half minutes. And, you know, he was bleeding out. There was blood pumping. Look how full of blood this bandage is. He has to get another bandage. He begins to understand how much he's bleeding, how dangerous this is, and how close he is to dying. And believe this, if you will, the blood draining from Dean's face here going almost blue, that is acting. <laughs> we didn't touch his face at all in post until after he's dead, at which point we, we put a, took a bit more colour out of it. But that extraordinary thing of the colour going out of his face, that's something that just happened, naturally. We have to find your brother. And here, uh, you know, it's very easy in a way to construct shots when the characters are in motion. But when the characters are static, or basically static as they are here, um, it becomes a bit more complicated. So here's a very key moment, and that's when the barn collapses and the uh, embers float past in the foreground. And this is the moment that Blake begins to become delirious. He's losing consciousness and he's becoming confused. We talked to a medic about this, a paramedic, about people uh, suffering stabbings and how quickly they can bleed out and what the various stages are. And she talked about shortage of breath and clamminess and them sweating, um, but also most particularly about the confusion and what's happened to them and how. And that's when we wrote in these two lines, what are they, are we being shelled? And and I've been hit, what was it? And Schofield saying, you've been stabbed. At that point, that moment shift in the scene from him understanding what's happened to not understanding what's happened happens around the time of those embers with a very subtle push-in on the camera. And that's a shift in tone in the scene that in the midst of all these big camera moves, it's the smaller moves sometimes that are the most satisfying. 
and the most expressive. Early on, when he actually gets stabbed, the camera circles him twice or once and a half times. And that's not something Roger and I had necessarily planned beforehand. But when we came to shoot the scene, the panic seemed best expressed by camera movement. So it's really expressing something that's inside the scene. Tell her I wasn't scared. And now Dean wonderfully begins to lose control. And like a little child, really, the look on his face and the way he, he asked Schofield to write to his mum, which is a line that Christie wrote, one of the very good reasons why you need a co-writer who doesn't think like you and is not the same sex as you or the same age as you, is they come at it from a totally different perspective. And one of the many wonderful additions she made to the script uh, was a line like that, which I, I suspect I would never have written myself. And suddenly you, he seems like a little boy and he just wants his mum. And I found that really touching. The other, some of the other stuff I, I was very determined to write myself, particularly the fact that Schofield tells him the truth when he says, am I dying? And then I'll find your brother. Just like you. A little older. And then in this moment, uh, he's gone. And I thought it was very important that this, we took our time here. Schofield does not know what to do. He has to pull himself together, tell himself that what he's done is promise his friend he's going to make it. And now he has to do it. He looks around for help. He gathers himself and he starts, he refocuses and begins to concentrate and think about what he has to do next. In the process of that, he doesn't express any, he, he has no time to express grief, and it, and it, certainly not in an extreme form. He has to pen it all in. One of the pressures I feel always with scripts, and sometimes you get a lot of studio notes about this, is that people have to express grief or emotion in the moment that these things happen to them. And in my experience in life, that's very often not the case. It takes a while for people to understand what's happened to them. It takes a while for them to begin to be able to put into words or, or even emotion what they feel about the person who has died or the event that's taken place that's um, pushed them to the edge. And so here, this very delicate move, Charlie, our brilliant operator of the Trinity rig, which is the largest Steadicam rig, had to intuit what George was doing with uh, the rings, putting them in his pocket, come round in time to see the photograph and travel with him as he looks around for somewhere to lay his friend that isn't just a muddy farmyard. And that's one of the things that was very difficult about the movie is sometimes you would have a magic take and then right at the end it would be derailed by something quite simple. A camera operator would trip, no fault of their own, or a prop would break, or some small thing would go wrong, and everything in the take was unusable. And that made for some pretty frustrating days. But it also, when it went right, like the day that uh, we shot this scene, uh, it made for some pretty exciting days as well. In that whip pan, we buried another cut. So that really was the beginning of the next scene. And we were able in that moment to take some more colour out of Blake's cheeks as we lay him down. 
And then in one of the few moments of luck in the film for Schofield, for George's character, he encounters a man who actually understands and intuits what he's gone through and what he needs. And what he needs is to be taken away as quickly as possible and told to forget about it. Of course, he won't forget about it and he can't, but he also has to refocus on the mission and on behalf of himself and his friend and his friend's brother, he has to fulfill his promise. And Mark Strong is just marvellous in this scene, as were all our star day players, <laughs> Colin Firth, Mark, Andrew Scott, Benedict Cumberbatch, Richard Madden, came in. I think they loved the fact that they were just treated as actors and, um, and asked to be part of a project that was not dependent on them for its success or failure. They just were being asked to come in and be the brilliant actors that they are, and they did it superbly, all of them. And their dedication and their team ethic was very moving to watch. This was something I did on the day, was to add in those peeing soldiers. I felt a kind of slap in the face after Blake's death was appropriate. And indeed, when a bunch of soldiers stop in a, a line-up of trucks, a large majority of them will jump out and have a pee. No, sir. He has an urgent message to deliver to the second Devon, sir. Can you get this was a, an enjoyable day, despite the bleak subject matter. One of the things that uh, Bill McCabe, who's playing the colonel, I think found strangest about this day was that he couldn't see where the camera was. We called action about three minutes before he spoke and called cut about three minutes after he, his scene. And he said it was a little bit like being in a reconstruction, one of those historical reconstructions. He couldn't see the camera. All he could see was the men. And he was in the middle of nowhere. And of course, our video village where we were watching our playback monitors was out of sight because the camera was 360 degrees pretty much all the time. I'm sorry about your friend. And here we have this conversation. Schofield is still in shock in a way. And Captain Smith, played by Mark Strong, says... He shouldn't dwell on it, which is really... And his his gentleness and his um, civility and wisdom in this scene is crucial because it picks Schofield up and, through a stroke of absolute luck, puts him in a situation where he can take the journey with a minimum of danger all the way to Acoust. And he finds himself in this truck amongst a bunch of random soldiers, really. And in this moment, I suppose, he's never felt more alone. And he begins to now come to terms with what's happened. And now he begins to miss his friend and look back at the sight of what's just happened to them. And uh, Tom Newman's music does a wonderful job of expressing that sense of loss and desolation at the fact that in amongst this group of men he's never felt more alone as they just talk about this and that and gossip and impersonations and what have you. I drew a lot on my experience in sports teams uh, in these scenes with the men. Uh, that sense of, you know, I played a lot of sport and I still do, not particularly well, but I love the company of, of people who come from different backgrounds and different 
parts of the world and have different associations and the sort of banter that takes place. And one of the things I was uh, very conscious of in the movie was uh, that this should be uh, is described by um, Mark Strong's character as the casuals truck and they've basically gone to the railhead, to the railway station, picked up soldiers who've come back off leave and said that we need an additional 60 men, jump in the truck, we're taking you up to the new line. And so you get this fragmented unit which has Geordies, Scots, Sikhs, Cockneys and people who, some people who know each other and some people who don't and you get, a, a, in a way, a kind of overview, a cross-section of the soldiers in a way that you probably wouldn't very much in the First World War because they would have been linked by where they came from, the Dorsets or the Devons or what have you, the Yorks. And, um, and so I wanted this sense of uh, a ragbag, really, of people all, all rammed in together. Um, at this point in 1917, a lot of the regiments, the Sikh regiments, the Indian regiments, West Indian regiments had been obliterated or uh, largely wiped out. And so you had uh, stragglers, people who were survivors of those regiments who, who were uh, then uh, put in other regiments. And I wanted to reflect the society that made this film. This film is a contemporary take on a historical period. We use, you know, the latest uh, filming equipment, an amazing digital camera. You know, we made a movie, the movie for IMAX and surround sound, this, that and the other. It seemed appropriate that we should reflect that in the way it was cast as well. So I was very conscious of having a properly diverse cast, both in the background and in speaking roles, even though perhaps that is not entirely historically accurate. I didn't care. Uh, I thought it was more important to make the statement that this culture is a diverse, multi-ethnic culture that we live in, and that's who made the film. Back in! Get back in! Go! And here you get this wonderful Sikh character, John Dallar, played with sort of supreme cool by Naban Rizwan, and uh, who watches him like a hawk now where he gets back in. One of the goals of the scene that's just passed, which is the scene in which the truck gets stuck in the mud, is to dramatise Schofield's state of mind rather than explain it. It took me and Christy a long time to write the scene to try and find a way of unlocking it and in that moment of discovering the, the idea of the truck getting stuck in the mud, Schofield's able to express all the frustration, all the rage and the heartbreak of what's happened to him without putting it into words. Because we were trying to articulate psychology as behaviour, not as words. There's a great pressure always for people to put into words what's happened to them. But in my experience, that's not always possible. But when he gets back into the truck and the men say, what's happened to you? They all know something's up. And when he says there were two of us, they all get it as one. And that's why sometimes it's better to have the character express something inarticulately in a way that becomes available to the people watching, rather than putting it into words. 
three years fighting over that. And here you get this conversation that takes place amongst the men, you know, looking at the land as they say that they fought over for three years. And what a mess the Germans have made of it, but also what a desolate landscape it is anyway. And rather crucially, a line here where he says it's not even our own country. Because I, I felt like as a large proportion of the audience, I didn't want to put that the movie takes place in France in a legend at the beginning. But I wanted that to be stated at least once, that this is not being fought in either England or Germany, but in France. And that that's where the two sides met. And it was France that was decimated by this war in terms of the actual landscape. When you go and visit the sites of the Somme or Tietval, you see that there are so many villages and towns that have been only rebuilt after the Second World War because they were all, that whole land was destroyed. It's a forgotten world. And that's what we were constructing when we built Acoust with Dennis Gassner and the brilliant art department that worked on this movie. That's a shame. It looks like I'll be getting out here. So now in this moment with the score and the move, the little shift in camera move there, we kind of give an audience, I hope, the feeling that we're moving a few miles quite quickly and a sense in which they should forget the distance because really we've actually travelled further than we would have been able to in that time. I don't have the time. Here's some splendid work by Guillaume Rocheron on the visual effects department with these set extensions. Very, very complex job of visual effects because they had to match real landscapes throughout um, and they're matching environments. And I think a lot of visual effects companies are very used to working on shots that last a very short amount of time. Um, and here we were living in these shots and seeing them from many different dimensions. And here's an example of one of those shots that starts looking down the canal into the distance. We actually shot this scene in Govan Docks in Chicago to get that sense of the scale of those industrial canals, and that dark stone. And we found that lock house that sits there in Govan. And then Dennis Gasser and the art department built this, this bridge. This was a scene that probably caused Roger Deakins and I more conversation than almost any other scene. I needed him to cross this river, but do so in a way that always kept him moving forwards rather than going to the edge, checking, taking a run, run up and jumping or anything like that. But didn't turn him into an action hero. I didn't want him to suddenly turn into 007 at the point where he had to do some tricky physical stunt. I wanted to stress how narrow this ledge was, which is why we came in behind his feet. And then we float out on a wire to get him in profile and look all the way down the canal. And again, in one shot, shift from something very intimate, and very detailed, which is the feet, to something very epic, which is the scale of the canal and the emptiness of the landscape beyond him when the German sniper starts to shoot. This was an extremely good live stunt by George. He's an extremely brave and extremely physically capable actor who gives, I have to say, I think, a massively underestimated performance. We built the movie around him and he is absolutely superlative in it.
here, you can see, you know, even though he's been capable enough to get across the bridge, that he's he's really rattled and he's frightened, and you can hear his breath sawing in and out. And uh, this is one of the nice things about staying within one perspective, is that you really feel that the lockhouse, the window of the lockhouse, is hidden from you. So when he pokes his head above the parapet now, you sort of have the same instinct as well, I hope. Here you see his hand shaking, and he's, he's whatever training he's been given, he's trying to remember. You see the hand shaking there, and really trying to steady his nerves. As far as he's concerned, this is make or break. And then you see the brief appearance of the German sniper in the window, and then sudden silence. But of course, he has to go and check that the sniper has indeed been hit, so he moves across this open ground. One of the things I was trying to do in the scene with Mark Strong earlier, as he says goodbye to him, is to remind the audience that even if he makes it with the letter, there's no guarantee the order will be taken, because I felt very important that that we didn't assume that the getting the letter there was everything. And that when we hit the scene with Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Mackenzie, at the end, that we don't know for certain that he's going to accept it. And now we have this gradual ascent of the staircase. And in a way, this is the last moment in the movie when it adheres to the sort of poetic naturalism that we've started with. And we needed to build the score as he approaches the door so it gets louder and louder because I felt if it came out of nowhere, this gunshot, it was a little bit abrupt. And they both shoot each other at the same time. And then we make the biggest decision in the movie in a way, stylistically, which is to cut to black. And to cut to black for quite a long time. And when we come back, to come back in a different perspective... We hear these drips in the darkness and then suddenly there he is in close-up, upside down. And this is the beginning, stylistically, of a different section of the film. Obviously, there were two reasons. The first reason for making this cut was I wanted the audience to feel like we'd lost track of time and not know anymore where we were in time or indeed in space initially. He's himself as doesn't know whether he's been out for two days, two hours, two minutes. It's dark. You hear rumble of thunder in the distance and you have to start to piece it together as he does. The first thing he does, obviously, is check for his watch to see what time it is. His watch is broken. And then you have this very strange, haunting, almost childlike piece of music initially from Thomas Newman. These little chimes like a... Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass. And somehow he survived and he's going to keep blindly going forward. And this is where the movie, this is the second reason for the cut, goes out of something naturalistic and into something, I hope, more mythic. A kind of descent into hell. And this section, I think, is probably the section we spent the most time on, which is the burning town, which is this sort of Dante-esque journey into 
the underworld, really. Floating out of this window, the first time the camera detaches completely from the character for any length of time and takes a journey that is not his, goes out of the window into this world of flares that are passing overhead and the burning town, and he's moving blindly, stumbling forward, and you feel that sense that he's going to do it, he's going to make it somehow, even though he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know where he's going, that the sort of sheer animal bravery of it is is really moving to me, and Tom's music expresses that superlatively well. I think it's a, I think my favourite piece of music Tom has ever written for any of my movies, and I think he's scored eight of them now, and I could listen to this over and over again. Technically, we split the wall to allow the camera to come out of it, and uh, we hooked the camera here, having followed him onto, we jumped onto a small vehicle, which is now driving with the camera pointing backwards as he runs faster and faster. And you feel like he's, he's going to make it. And these flares, which I'm sure if you listen to the parallel track, Roger Deakins will tell you all about, were uh, connected to wires so that we could control the flight of them. They were hung off cranes. And there is a little homage, that poster that is for the circus behind him on the wall. The movie was dedicated to my grandfather, but that is a homage to my grandmother, Ellen, who was married to him, who grew up in the circus in South America in the 20s and 30s. And that piece of music comes to an end as the flares die and we come into Main Street. One of the things I asked Dennis Gastner to do that I felt was very important was to construct what the town would have been before it was destroyed. So it had a logic. So we knew where Main Street was, we knew where the tobacconist was, we knew where the cafes were and the bars and the rich part of town and the poor part of town, the allotments, and of course the main square, which is what we're coming up to now with a fountain in the middle, which forms almost like a crucifix as he's approaching what was the largest lighting rig I've ever seen, or <laughs> Roger Deakins' lighting rig with, I think, over 2,000 lamps in it, which is then turned into this magnificent burning church by our visual effects team. Uh, and that sense of everything being lit by the church in the town and constructing the town around the light source, that was very important to us. We modelled it up very carefully and ripped bits off the wall so that the light would streak through at the right times. And then this moment that feel like come from a dream, a bad dream I had where he sees almost like a shadow of himself and he simply assumes it's a friend because of the way he's walking. And it turns out it isn't. And before he knows it, he's being pursued and shot at. Everything happens just a beat faster than he could anticipate. And in a stroke of luck, the man following falls and um, he takes a risk and goes down this, uh, this coal hatch into a basement and we hear the German run by. And here was uh, 
another dreamlike scene that I was very keen to get in again in this feeling of the movie breathing in and breathing out. It felt like it needed something other than men shooting at each other. And Christy and I came up with this scene with a young woman, Laurie, played by the very talented and very inexperienced Claire de Burke, for whom this was her first job, I think. Um, and she didn't speak much English, but she didn't need to. She understood what the scene was uh, from the very beginning. The only thing she had to learn was to how to handle a baby. And this sense of this terrified, vulnerable being, you know, it came out of a lot of research about what happened during the retreat to the Hindenburg Line. They took a lot of the men and they left behind a lot of the women and children if they didn't kill them. And many of them were killed, as you discover later on when Schofield has to climb over the bodies of dead civilians, many of them women, in the river. Uh, a scene that I found, along with this one, the most upsetting in the movie. I found this one upsetting because of the baby. When I sat down to write this film, I had a, a two-month-old daughter, and um, she found her way into the film. Uh, I'm not saying she actually played the role. <laughs> I wouldn't be quite that mad. Instead, it's played by a wonderful baby called Ivy who just nailed it every take. Incredible. But I found the fact that uh, it was an innocent being uh, really upsetting, the idea that many, many times over this scene played out in the real war, babies, parentless children, or civilians that lost children in it themselves. I find that almost the most upsetting thing of all. But clearly I'm a big softie because I had a young child as I was writing it as well. And suddenly the sort of... the sensual power of just the warmth of the fire and the sound of the fire and the fact he's beginning to sort of come back to life again. His own injuries, his hand, his head, which is cut badly, as you can see, from the pool of blood that's under his head when he lands on the, the stone floor of the lockhouse. And just the touch of somebody else, the kindness being shown here, is almost more than he can bear. And this was a very a very delicate scene in terms of moves. We wanted, again, it's one of the rare times the camera stops for any any length of time. And it's to allow the two of them to make contact in a way that's beyond a speech or sight um, until he turns and looks at her at the very end, just through touch and uh, a feeling of two people giving each other solace very, very briefly before they're disturbed by the sound of the baby. Tom Newman's score does something very beautiful here. There's a sort of distant, almost like a human voice here. She moves towards the, the drawer and Ivy in her stroke of genius then chooses to move her leg. <laughs> Just so you see that little tiny leg sticking out of the drawer like that, and then uh, she makes her first appearance. We had a little bit of time with the babies. Uh, we obviously have to have multiple babies because uh, 
they can only work for 20 minutes a day. But uh, Ivy was the was an undoubted star. And George also was very gentle and um, communicative. And they formed a little bit of a bond, as you can see in this scene. She's fascinated in him and, and he engages her and waits for her to reach out. I have food. And here, at the risk of it being a kind of um, a little bit pat, a little bit neat, the milk that he's taken earlier, because he's obviously used up his water, washing the dust out of his eyes after the tunnel collapse, he fills his canteen with milk, and it turns out that, um, of course, that's the only thing that she needs, and he has it. And I just thought, I don't know, it felt to me like... We deserve this moment of grace in the film and that he deserves it too. That just this coincidence, which is based on a first-person account that Christie found of a man who had stolen milk, a British soldier who had stolen milk from a farmyard and was riddled with guilt about it for two days, carried it around with him and then found a woman and child who needed milk and felt in that moment that that was why he'd done it and felt... There was a reason for it all, and that's found its way into the film. Children, you? Shh. It's all right. And I won't lie, this is a poem, obviously, uh, The Jumblies by Edward Lear, that uh, I've, um, I know and have said to my own children. So it has a, a, a meaning for me, but it also has a meaning beyond that, which is, uh, it seemed to me, a great metaphor for the Great War, uh, for the First World War. They went to sea in a sieve. The kind of hopelessness of it, the impotence, the impossibility of what they were trying to achieve. And the fact that in this moment, it goes from a child's ditty in Schofield's eyes to something profoundly right about the whole human situation of the war. And he only sees it, and as he says it, he only understands it for the first time, he feels, in that moment. And then the bells strike. That combination of uh, trying to find something that is calming for the baby, that also, at the same time, says something about the situation he finds himself in and the war as a whole. You know, it's fair to say that the Second World War, uh, looking back on it, one of the reasons I think why it's so well documented in movies is because the situations are very varied. It was a war fought in many arenas, many theatres, and with a very clear baddie, uh, the Nazis. Whereas the First World War, you know, was a human tragedy on a different scale. Every soldier, in a sense, was innocent within it. It was the madness of the politicians and the generals sending them to war that was the most notable evil. And so I wanted as much as possible to not paint the Germans as sort of heartless baddies, but as frightened and as lost as the British soldiers. And in a very real sense, a movie that's about the human experience of war could be told about two French soldiers, two Belgian soldiers, two German soldiers. It just happens I'm English and these are the people who I wanted to carry this story. 
And so the image of the sieve and they went to the sea and the sieve, everyone involved in it, that felt particularly keenly accurate to the whole situation. So here he is on the way out of town, just trying to look for the light and establish what direction to go in. And he finds another rogue German soldier. We decided that these two had, had sort of gone rogue and, and uh, were playing hooky. And here you see uh, Taddeo, who, who plays the German soldier, Balmer, who's younger and even more terrified than Schofield, and clearly as lost. Not a baddie, not a bogeyman, not some evil guy, but just, a, you know, a soldier like Schofield. And Schofield gives him a way out in this moment, as they do with the pilot, just try to be humane and say, if you don't speak, I won't speak, and we can just go our, our way. And then in fear, Bauma calls out, and then there's only one thing for it, which is to try, it's a fight to the death, really. And this was a Roger Deakins idea, this, um, this idea of the foreground, the, the fight happening in the foreground, while the second soldier, who's clearly pissed as a fart in the background, is sort of calling for him, but can't see him in the shadows. It took a while to design and stage. It was very tricky to try and get everyone to somehow tell the two stories at the same time. But you see that hand falling in the foreground that shows you that Baumer has lost consciousness just at the point where Muller, the second German soldier, is walking up to Schofield. And now we're on a motorbike following Schofield across this, uh, through this last stretch of the town, the maze of broken buildings and alleyways. And uh, I was very conscious to not get stuck behind him. I wanted to be in profile for a large amount of the time. There's a blend coming up just here when we go through this wall and he comes out the other side and you see the geography of how far the men are behind him and then this last breakneck run out of town. In this shot, you see there's a bridge up ahead. So again, it's just establishing geography and the information that you need so that when he does these last few steps and takes the leap, you know where he's going. And so I was very conscious of not going into a water tank. I didn't want to see him underwater. In my experience, when you're underwater, you don't see very much, particularly in a river in full flood as this is. This was a, to say this was a tricky sequence to shoot would be an, an understatement. But in the end, what we got, I think both Roger and I are extremely proud of. We shot it in a white water facility, white water rafting facility up by the River Tees in the north of England. And uh, George was really in amongst it there he was we flung him into some very cold water and trying to skim across the surface of the water was one of the things we really were determined to do rather than being stuck in a a boat if you're in a boat you know as the boat tips up camera has to look down and you go up and down all the time but we wanted him to be moving but we didn't want to be affected by the movement of the water on camera 
and trying to give it detail. You know, the various different sections of the river, him removing his kit, him clinging onto the tree, him banging his head on the rock, you know, negotiating his way through these various sections of the rapids, and then suddenly, before he knows it, getting to this waterfall and being absolutely pounded into the water below. That also marks a transition, that waterfall, between the whitewater rafting facility and the real river, which is what he begins to float down as he resurfaces. Uh, there's a blend there, obviously, between two different locations. And now we're on the real river as he's clinging to his, um, to his log and uh, begins to drift downstream. There was a sense in which here, uh, Christy and I wanted him almost to give up. He's so exhausted, he's come to terms with the fact that, you know, if it ends here, it ends, and there's nothing I can do about it. And he almost falls asleep or loses consciousness, and it's only choking on the water that brings him back into his consciousness again. And in that moment, something happens that is lucky and reminds him of his friend and refocuses him on what he has to do for himself and to fulfill his promise. And Blake kind of re-enters the film in the form of these blossoms here. And uh, from that moment on, he's brought back into the land of the living, having gone down into hell, down into the underworld. This really from here is him clawing his way back to life across, you know, the bodies of dead people um, back up the slope into the land of the living. This was a pretty complex job of visual effects that in the end they did very, very well. A lot of these blossoms are not live. Some of them are, some of them are visual effects. One of the unsung heroes of the movie, I think, was Tristan, who was our prosthetics designer and, and made these dead bodies and many of the corpses that are in the movie. It's, uh, it's not a particularly nice job, but he is very, very gifted, and uh, he and our brilliant hair and makeup designer, Naomi Dunn, really excelled themselves here with uh, these bodies and throughout the movie with uh, the wounded and the various different stages of Schofield's destruction. This I found really tricky to shoot, upsetting, because it was the bodies of civilians and somehow it brought home to me again. It was so much more than just the men who died, uh, the soldiers. And here, Schofield basically loses it. He's crying, I think, and I said in the script, for everything. For his friend, uh, for the baby, for the fact that he himself is spared when all those people in the water are not. Incomprehensibly to him, he thinks, why, why am I alive and all those people not? And in that moment, he hears that distant song. One of the stories, one of the first-person accounts I read 
which I'm sure you're detecting a theme if you've listened to this, if you've had the patience to listen to this from the beginning, is how much of this movie was based on first-person accounts and that level, that kind of historical research. One of them was a story uh, written by a private long after the war ended, a memory of stumbling into a group of soldiers in a a wood, listening to an impromptu concert played by one of them on a piano that had been looted from a French farmhouse. He says it's a Debussy nocturne, and it was the most beautiful piece of music he'd ever heard. But also in that moment, he realised that he'd not heard any music for two years and how much he'd missed it. And that obviously lodged with me. And when we came to write the movie, I wanted to try and find something similar for this moment. It felt to me like the piano was a bit contrived and they're pushed up to a new line so they wouldn't be particularly near any looted farmhouses. And that became this song, uh, which is uh, something... It's just the most beautiful song. It's been covered by many, many people from Leonard Cohen to Ed Sheeran. I think you'll find there's a very good version by Ed Sheeran on YouTube. But uh, the one that I love was a version by Andreas Scholl, a uh, countertenor. And um, that was what was in my mind when I wrote the scene. An a cappella rendition of this song, which seemed to be about passing over really about about dying and about how peaceful it might be to go back and see your dead mother or your dead father and it just seemed to be the perfect thing to be being sung now in this moment when Schofield walks into these woods and sees what initially he thinks might even be ghosts but turn out to be the men of the Devons waiting to be sent over, probably to their deaths. And that gradual arrival of the sound, that gradual crescendo as you get closer and closer and the men become clearer and clearer. They're not the woods themselves. They are actually people just sitting and listening to this mesmerizing song sung by um, a young actor called Joss Slovic, who sung every take, sung it live, and uh, unadorned, uh, without any contemporary vocal stylings and with as little vibrato as possible. And there's just something so... Like, like time has stopped. And these people who seem to be just shapes then become human beings. And in this moment now, when... Uh, our splendid camera operator Charlie enters the circle they suddenly become faces and you see how young they are and how frightened I suppose this was a very memorable day um, doing this this shot it seemed to be expressing something more than just I hoped more than just the journey of Schofield, but the journey of thousands of Schofields, all of them accidental heroes, all of them entirely innocent. And uh, this one that we end up here on just is the one we happen to be following in this moment.
at Jordan. I'm only going over home. And then when the spell is broken, splendid actor I've worked with before, Jack. Again, he has a good fortune to meet someone warm and, you know, um, kind. Uh, there's not much kindness in the movie, but he's here's here's one of the people he meets who who is. I have to find the Devons. Funny story, Jack had to it was in Downton Abbey, the movie in, and we delayed our day two or three times. And um he had to rush off and complete his his day's filming for Downton Abbey. And this was the last take uh he he could do, and so he, he nailed it right at the end. We go last. And suddenly you see Schofield begin to realise that just by chance he has stumbled all the way downriver into the woods that the woman talked about and found the Devons. He reaches for his tobacco tin. The story of the tobacco tin is a is an interesting one, which I'll I'll tell you in a minute. This is this moment of reveal here is very key. Is suddenly you get this world of white trenches dug in chalk, which came from Roger Deakins and I trip to Belgium when we saw the first trenches that were chalk trenches. It had never occurred to either of us that the trenches could be anything other than mud, really. Um, but many, many hundreds of miles of trenches were dug in chalk. Um, and now we afford the audience for the first time really the view above the trenches as we and then we float down into them on a crane the tobacco tin story is that when we went roger and i to the somme they just discovered an entire skeleton under the ground and dug him up um and obviously the clothes had rotted off but the tobacco tin remained and inside was a book he was reading with his name and rank and they'd called his next of kin, and uh, the woman answered and burst into tears and said, that's my grandfather. And they came and buried him in Teepvale, just in the Somme. That's the splendid Mike Gibson, one of many really great stage and screen actors who I called up and were able to come and just provide some of that detail that's necessary when you pass some of these soldiers you want to feel each one is different each one has a different reaction to what's happening some are frightened some are stoked some are pumped up and others like justin edwards here who is a wonderful actor who just finished his run of the ferryman in new york a play i directed on broadway came just in order to cry but i wanted a big man who had just lost it and uh He's a wonderful actor and did a wonderful job. And then the shelling begins and then it started getting really hard to shoot because everything you see was raining down on the camera operators as well as on George. And it was pretty scary. There was a lot of very, very big explosive charges going off and we couldn't cut. And this one here that you see in a second camera right there, that pretty much knocked the camera operator Pete off his feet. But brave that he is, he um, he carried on and kept pushing down this trench with stuff raining down on him. 
Here's another wonderful actor, Jamie Parker, fresh off his run playing the, uh, the adult Harry Potter and winning a Tony for it on Broadway. Again, another person who instinctively believes Schofield and wants to help him and just has a, a manner about him that just feels trustworthy. And that this explosion, those explosions make it clear that Schofield will never get down that trench in time. And this is the moment, this push-in, where he begins to think, maybe I could go over the top. Maybe I could run on the other side of the trench. And I think it's a wonderful piece of acting by George that you can read that in his eyes, those staring eyes, that white face reminds me of Buster Keaton or something. And then up he gets. And in those first few seconds, he can't even believe he's done it. He's just walking. And then he thinks, I've got to go. And as the men go over, he starts to run. And I think Tom Newman's score here helps immeasurably. And what happens next was not planned. He gets absolutely knocked off his feet. I'd said to George beforehand, I said, there are 500 people here, all adrenalized, all know it's one shot. If you get knocked down or you get hit, just get up and keep running. And he did. And the results, I think, are pretty splendid. The way the land falls away here was another stroke of luck so that as he gets closer, we start looking down almost on the men. And so you see how they spread out across the landscape. You really begin to understand how many they were. There were 500 costumed extras here. It was a very, very exciting day. An image I'd had in my head since the beginning of writing the movie and it was pretty exhilarating to see it brought to life like this. And I have a lot to be thankful to those extras for. They were all brilliant and dedicated. Local boys from Salisbury and uh, young men of Wiltshire. I needed Schofield here to hear someone referring to the Colonel but not see him yet and realise that the next wave is about to be sent. So he meets that last wave of resistance and then he bursts in to find Mackenzie finally. Who's like a laser beam looking straight back at him. I have orders from General Erinmore to call off this attack. You're too late, Lance Corporal. Sir, these orders are from Army Command. You have to read them. Shall we hold back the second wave, sir? No, Major. Hesitate. And I wanted the audience still to have that line that Mark Strong speaks in their mind. Make sure there are witnesses. He may not take the order. And here we have the superb Adrian Scarborough playing the Major to, his, to Benedict's left. And the two of them together, there's this one key moment where he says the Germans planned this, where Mackenzie decides to maybe allow this to happen. I was very conscious to not paint Mackenzie as a baddie. There was a certain pressure there always is to have a kind of an antagonist, you know, a, a Colonel Kurtz who'd gone rogue and was insanely sending men to their death. But here... Yes, he's gung-ho. Yes, he's um, made that decision and he's committed to it. But he, like all the other leaders in the film, are lost in the fog of war and just trying to make the best decision in the circumstances. And I felt that was really important for the film, not to have the easy out of having some mad general killing people 
you know, at will. I hoped today might be a good day. And this is a very important speech in a way because he says, well, you know, I've done it for now, but tomorrow they'll give me the same order again. And uh, I felt that was the reality of this war. Uh, it was a very delicate balance at the end of the film. I wanted Schofield, obviously, to save huge numbers of men, but to not succeed entirely. Uh, many men go over to their deaths. He doesn't make it in time to save all of them. But he makes an enormous and significant impact. And now, Fuck off. that, I think, is my favourite line in the movie. There's something so just nakedly right about that line. <laughs> Don't think you're some kind of a hero. You know, just, you did what you were asked to do, now go away. Well done, lad. Thank you, sir. But it's the Major, played by Adrian Scarborough, who who praises him, who gives him, and what he, and, and, and to a large degree the audience, I hope, need at this point, which is some sense that, that people realise what he's done and that they do know that he's been immensely heroic in the circumstances. And then they have this discussion about, about Lieutenant Blake because, of course, we wanted to remind the audience that is the next stage of his journey, the last stage of this mythic journey that he's been on. And the chances of finding Blake are slim. Uh, that most people who've gone over in the first wave are either still out there, injured or dead, but those who've come back or been dragged back will, will all end up in the, the clearing station, the casualty clearing station behind the lines. And trying to give some sense of the speed at which these injuries, these fatalities occurred and how fast they have to drag people back in off the field and run back in themselves because they've been stood down. Uh, that was very key in that one shot. And that sense of Schofield now exhausted, spent, but still now looking for his friend's brother and trying, you know, starting to find a needle in a haystack, really. How seemingly impossible it is in the midst of all this carnage and destruction uh, to find just a random officer who could be anywhere. Again, it's what I talked about earlier, that feeling that, you know, you could kill a man. Many of the men who went over the top were mown down by machine guns or destroyed by shells, uh, but you couldn't communicate, you know, any further than you could shout. And he just has to walk up here and shout to try and find Lieutenant Blake because it's the only way he could possibly uh, locate him. And that feeling uh, in this scene, this was a scene that really we shot once and I felt was wrong and we reshot. I felt I had uh, backed off the horrors of what would the casualty clearing station would be like. And so here there are amputees and people who've lost legs and, um, you know, you're, you're not spared really. Um, uh, I felt that the first time I shot it was a bit disengaged and that the desperation, the panic, the rush and the, the sense of people talking over each other and, you know, just the, the sort of formlessness of the medical help here and just the lack of personnel to help, you know, 
that hadn't been clear and, and I felt uh, I feel now in this version of it it's it's as clear as I could make it and again it was a choice that Roger and I made to detach uh, from Schofield at this point and float over these bodies of the wounded and again we were hugely assisted by a a brilliant AD crew and superb uh, background here we wrote little vignettes for all of them, lines, scenarios, so that they could be completely committed to it. None of them were doing accidental dialogue. Uh, everyone was speaking scripted dialogue, and it meant there was a level of commitment and passion in the background. And I never said a proper thank you on this day, because when I looked up, they'd all gone. Uh, and I always felt I felt guilty about that. And if anyone's listening, thank you to the people who were... Uh, the background in that scene because you were brilliant and then our final our final character really which is um blake's brother uh joseph blake or lieutenant played by richard madden who came in and if you can believe it this is his first take um we rehearsed until we got the light um, but he was pretty spectacular out of the gate a look on his face here when he realises that Schofield's come to tell him that his brother is dead is worth a thousand words and a reminder as to why you don't always have to be in super close up to understand emotion, nor do you have to see both sides of a, of a dialogue scene always. There's something about staying on Blake's brother here and taking your time. And there's a little bit of dialogue I'm pleased with here too, which is that he asks his name and then doesn't listen and ask him again. And in that moment, we find out a crucial piece of information. In fact, we find out three crucial pieces of information right at the end of the film. That Blake's first name is Tom, that Schofield's first name is Will, and of course, right at the end, that Will has a wife and two girls. Schofield feels like there's more to say and it bothers him. And so he turns back. And in that moment of turning around so the camera can see him, we reconnect with Schofield. While he gives him his last... He feels like he needs to say something about Blake that makes it clear like that he knew exactly who he was. And he finds one piece of information. He says he was funny. And the way Richard responds to that is very, very moving. He looks at him and says, yeah, there now. Yeah, that's my brother. Thank you. And that handshake, if you're smart and observant, you'll notice the movie starts with someone grab a handshake and it ends with a handshake. This is a kind of thank you to all the people without wanting to be sentimental who fought on our behalf for some sort of free and unified Europe in a war that lost an entire generation of men. When I first thought about the film, before we really wrote the first draft of the script, this scene took place on a, a banks of a stream. And then we went location scouting and we saw this tree. And the tree seemed like a character all on its own. And I looked at Roger and Roger looked back and it was like, this is where we've got to end it. It seems so right that he ends where he begins with everything changed. So this is where we 
on one very, very beautiful late afternoon in Salisbury where we ended the movie. And Tom Newman wrote the most exquisite piece of cello music to accompany this moment, which expresses kind of everything one hopes you might be able to express in music that can't be expressed in words. And um, one of the things that I'm sure Roger will say on the parallel commentary is that he wanted, we both desperately wanted the sun to come out in this last moment. And uh, his wife, James, said, Roger, you can do lots of things, but you can't make the sun come out. And he did. <laughs> so he must have some kind of hotline to God, as I've said several times before about Roger Deakins. These are two original photographs. Somewhere out there are the families of these people. I found them and we got clearance on them. And these two beautiful girls and this woman who just felt like there was Gofield's family. And uh, we leave him thinking about those he loves and everything that lies ahead of him as the music builds to some kind of a climax. And I suppose I wanted the audience with this last dedication to my grandfather to feel like Schofield, like my granddad, Alfie, lived to tell the stories because there were some who survived. Well, if you got this far, well done. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And uh, thank you for being interested. <laughs>